0: This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Oliver Jones. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business, or today, in the public sector. Citizens and businesses across Europe are engaging more with their governments digitally, from paying taxes to tolls, to administering healthcare or applying for subsidies. Countries like Estonia have led the way. Now that e-government is here to stay, what does its future hold and what does it mean for you? Joining me today to explore this are experts from here at Capgemini.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Niels von der Linde. I'm a vice president at Capgemini Invent. And from IDC.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Max Klaps and I'm a research director with IDC Government Insights.
1: Tell us first of all, what is e-government? So usually e-government is defined as the use of technology for more effectively and efficiently delivering government services to citizens and businesses. And for us as citizens, what does the government really mean? What is it? What are the benefits for us? I think in general, the, the main benefits are in, for instance, saving time, in saving costs, in increasing your flexibility on when or where to use the service instead of always have the obligation to go to a physical place. And, uh, and it can also increase, I would say, the, the trust and the security of the services, maybe even more than the paper processes that, uh, that we had in the past.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you you made a point, even in your definition of e-government, Niels, right? Because somebody else could have said e-government is about putting services online, but you said e-government is about making services more effective and efficient and responsive. And I think the only element that I would add to what you said is the convenience for not to worry about the bureaucratic silos, right? As we have seen the evolution of e-governments in the past 20 years. There's more uh, one-stop shop, multi-channel, omni-channel approaches, whatever we want to call it, that makes it a little bit more intuitive to deal with an institution that may deliver multiple services and, and, and so forth and so on. And the citizen doesn't have to call 10 different phone numbers or go to 25 different offices and so forth and so on. I'm not sure we are at the end of the journey there, but it's definitely one of the potential benefits.
1: I like that point that it's uh, it's because um, it's often mistaken e-government for indeed online services, whereas it's for me much more about the quality of the online services rather than just having something
0: online. What approaches have governments been taking to deliver e-government uh, in different countries around the world?
2: Niels, I'll, I'll start on it. I think putting services online. We've said that's not the out the intended outcome, but that's where everybody has started. Then. With the evolution over time it came making the need to make those services available also through other channels like mobile phones through intermediaries like third parties that could act on behalf of the government like post offices and it was all enabled by technology and i think maybe one other element that we can reflect upon is the difference between national government and regional and local government so there's not so much of a difference in terms of approach among different countries, they're at a different stage of evolution, but they're trying to do more or less the same thing. But there are quite some differences between a big national government department, like a revenue agency and a small municipality, what they can afford to do, what they need to do, the breadth, instead of the depth of services that they need to make available in digital format.
1: And maybe to build on that, I mean, one of the concepts that you hear often in this space is, uh, let's say the, the phrase, digital by default. Uh, So this is our approach to government services with the idea basically being a digital by default uh, services that are so straightforward and easy to use that that everyone that can actually use online services will actually do that without, um, you know, excluding those who can't. That's still one of the big challenges, I think, for governments in, in advancing digital government that we also need to take into account that not everybody might have the skills to already do. And I think that's one of the interesting things, at least that's what I like from the study that we do for the commission, that you see different approaches, at least variations on the same team, maybe is a better word. But for instance, in, in digital by default countries that, that go to um, making some services more mandatory to be used online. For businesses, that might be a, an easy case because you can say, okay, businesses, they, they, they should have the skills or at least they can take care of it better than maybe any citizen. But even some countries take that step into making mandatory all the citizen services online. And that that is a a more bolder move, I would say. Not the common rule, but it's interesting to see how different countries uh, take different uh, lines there.
0: E-government isn't a new concept. It's something that we've been hearing and, and talking about for a couple of decades now. So do you think this idea has reached maturity and we're all at the point of accepting that we'll be able to transact with the government online where we need to? Or does it have a lot further to go? What will come next in your view?
1: Maybe I can give a first inch, and then Max, you, you can build on that because I'm sure you have a view here. But at least from what we see, for instance, in the study, in the EGOF benchmark, we see that there is progress, but uh, it's it's incremental, eh? so it's always smaller steps. And I think one of the reasons for that is also that, that at a certain stage, you can only make a really small improvement unless you do it really in a different way, in a different model. And I think that also builds, Max, on your earlier comment on on cross-agency collaboration and so on. I guess that, in terms of maturity, that would be the next big step to to make.
2: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I hope we're not at the end of the journey. Otherwise, I'll have to look for another job tomorrow. But but kidding aside, I I think it goes back to your previous questions, right? There are different styles and approaches and and themes that different uh, member states in Europe that have focused on. So I can think of Nordic countries that have done a lot of work on interoperability. The UK, not anymore a EU member country, but they were for the longest time that have done a lot of work on front-end one-stop shop with GOV.UK, but have struggled, for example, with one of the enablers of the government, which is digital identity. I think there are various different kinds of gaps that still give us hope to I have more work to do on it. So far, government has been about making the same process available for citizens, just uh, in a more convenient manner through a more convenient channel. But by reversing the paradigm and the government having access to a set of data and proactively delivering services to citizens, proactively providing a pre-field tax return that I only have to approve or proactively sending me uh, a check for whatever child support and and that kind of thing and that proactive government in a transparent and, and trusted manner it's still a long way to go i think
1: yeah yeah i agree I, I, that, but that is the key uh n- next step and what comes with that for me is the more you start reusing data to make the services uh, proactive or efficient also comes the question okay as a citizen can i still see who within government is using my data for what purpose? And what do we actually know about me? So that I'd say the balance of reusing the data and some transparency or, or ownership on that data as an individual, I think is, is also one of those next steps at e-government or whatever we want to call it, digital government, we want, we, we yeah, need to include. And maybe one more thing there is something that I also see around a, what's next around this concept of e-government is more and more the attention to include uh, new technologies that are being developed eh, on the rise. There is so much, let's say, buzz, to use one of these cliché words, on, on startups, technology startups, and all these interesting solutions need to find their way into public sector and e-government services as well. And I guess that is also one of the big, let's say, next challenges for governments to, uh, to handle. We're talking here about government being able to provide quite sophisticated,
0: proactive services very personalized very data driven services to people what are the barriers that governments and public sector organizations have to overcome in order to be able to to do that what are the obstacles to achieving e-government and reversing that paradigm
2: I, I think we we just talked about one of them which is the citizen trust which is not just about protecting privacy but really establishing a relationship and an engagement with the citizen builds on being confident that the government is doing a good job that is doing it in an accountable and transparent manner. And that varies by culture, by country. I mentioned the UK that struggled a little bit with digital identity. It's not because they didn't try and they didn't have all good intentions, but the UK never had a paper ID to begin with. So culturally, it was difficult to build that trust that would Enable to scale digital ID. Whereas I'm Italian and in Italy we always had a, digital, a paper ID when uh, it came to time to create something like SPID, which is the now the, the federated digital ID. Although it took some time, it became commonplace. So the, the trust element is one of the challenges to overcome. I would say uh, legacy technology, of course. Not all of the technology that the government has been using for the past 50 years is easy to re-architect and redesign for the new opportunities and the new capabilities that emerging technologies are bringing in. And quite honestly, like in every technology project, some organizational change and organizational resistance needs to be taken into account because it's about Redesigning that paradigm and having the government civil servants think with a new mindset.
1: Yeah, I can only agree Uh, and not much more to add, actually, it's about that interoperability of technology solutions that exist, but just implementing them broader requires a different um, way of organizing. I mean, there are still examples of government services where you actually fill in online forms, they get printed in the back office and then the print is taken to another system within the same organization to be again inserted into another system because yeah, that's the legacy quest but that's definitely one of the key things and and one of the um, the other challenges i would also say is in the design of the services itself the whole user journey from awareness to finding a service to accessing it to using it to the whole feedback loop that requires a really coherent approach to how you design services some people call it human-centric i prefer the, the word user-centric because i believe uh, and i Thinking back of my Latin teacher who once said human comes from OMO, which means man. And I think we need diverse <laughs> services. But uh, but in that part of the, the designing the user journey is also a big um, step ahead. Also making sure that everyone with, for instance, visual impairments can easily navigate uh, websites and understand what the, what the text actually uh, means as well. And one of the things there as well is that uh, we, you mentioned, let's say, interoperability and, and collaboration across uh, agencies. We, we see that also in the research, yeah, uh, in the e-government benchmark, that there is a difference between how services are provided at the national level versus the local level. And most of that is due to the fact that not all cities or regions are using, reusing the solutions that are already there, provided either at national or even European level. So are there, are there any areas where e-government has failed in the past or where it's not worked out? And, and if so, what can we learn from those experiences? From what I've seen, I think the key lesson that we can learn from from that is that it's not just about online services uh, there are some services that maybe work better if they are done offline that was a recall uh, a discussion we had in the past on for instance employment services so do you need to digitalize all services related to job seekers and and so on or is it more effective in the long term to at least have a face-to-face intake at the beginning and maybe one or two physical catch-ups in that process. And I think uh, in the end, that proved out to be more efficient and uh, effective in getting people back into work faster than when you would just have an online environment where you need to do all the steps and people who are who have lost their jobs can also lost the inspiration to to get back into work. So that, I think that's one thing. So it's uh, online services, not only about online. I think that's, that's one of the key things.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would entirely agree. I was actually thinking of a similar example uh, A long time ago, I had a conversation with the CIO of the National Revenue Agency, and it was telling me the story of how they went too far. They even put online services like fuel tax collection. But fuel taxes are usually collected and, and taken from one or two large companies, the oil companies that operate in that country. And they come once a year. This stack of paper or this stack of PDFs that they have uploaded on a website and it doesn't make the process easier for them because it's in any case a conversation. It's a lot of reconciliation. It's looking through a lot of complex transactions. With two entities, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have it fully digitized. It's still important to have a dedicated case officer that understands the context of the operation, that understands all of those transactions. So it's really about trying to get a sense of the impact that a government can make is it a high volume, relatively low complexity, easy to use type of service, or is it a highly sensitive issue, very complex, re-employing and retraining somebody, or collecting fuel tax, and with a relatively small number of transactions, you could almost build a matrix there that says there's a sweet spot for high level of automation, and there's a frontier that Maybe moves slowly towards more complex services. I think that's one of the key lessons that we've learned over the past 20 years.
0: So, do you think all public services can be delivered digitally? You know what can't be delivered as an e-government service, and how should the different channels work together?
2: Yeah, maybe I'll pick this up since I started earlier. As I said, I think there's a frontier, right? When we started 20 years ago, we thought. Only information could be made available online. And then some services like renewing a driving license could be executed entirely online and more complex transactions with better technology, better understanding became available online. I think the other angle I always think about is the journey, right? Because the service and consuming the service is not just a one step. It's You look for information, you try to see if you're entitled to it, you register for something, and then you have questions about registration, and then the government sends you back something, and then you actually apply for the service, receive the service, file a complaint, and blah, 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 blah. So that experience journey, there's probably steps that are easier to automate and digitize and steps that require a phone interaction or a face-to-face interaction. That's, that's how I see
1: it. You mentioned that the complexity of the service is one of those indicators, and, and there might also be an indicator around, let's say, the, the essence or the security of a service, so some services you, you just don't want to do <laughs> online. When we talked about employment app, yeah, because it's more effective, but also think, for instance, of when you register a business. I know in the Netherlands, there was a big story that the process, the first step is not online and it was actually because they wanted to see, who was actually at the counter and whether or not that was a, let's say a straw man working for some criminals to open a legal entity. So this is also one of the checks that they had in mind with having that service, let's say offline. So that might also be, you was know, one of the angles also to take into account. What strategies for achieving a government have been most
0: successful so far? What kinds of things have helped governments? deliver these services and and have them adopted by the public?
1: I would say in general, the strategy is is more a quest of transformation. eh? So we already talked about the digital by default approach and ensuring also that there is more cross-agency collaboration. And in essence, I I really believe that is at the heart. It's not about making one service or one website online available or even for one public entity, but it's really uh, orchestrating that journey across multiple entities. And that can only be done in a at least in most of the countries, I believe, in a different way than they are doing it now. Denmark was one of those example countries that actually managed to restructure their municipalities, provide a bit more, let's say, larger scale, and then also implement that that digital infrastructure across all those tiers of, of government to make it work. And you see some good examples of the same popping up. So, for instance, maybe surprising in Hungary, they have a really good shared municipal services platform where you can basically access all the local services on, on in, in one place. So that that helps to build that one government approach.
2: And I think the other element, it's having the trusted digital identity. It's about the ability to keep track of the documents and the transactions that are being exchanged in a transparent manner and record them. It's about automating the workflow. So what happens with those key enablers that citizens don't necessarily see, apart from the identity maybe? But what happens in in that middle office also makes a big difference, right? And we see some variations across countries also from the benchmarking around those key enablers.
0: We've mentioned Denmark and we mentioned Estonia earlier. I'm very interested to know which countries are leading the way in e-government and what they're doing, what other countries could learn from them. What did you learn when you evaluated that in the benchmarks
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I find it always tricky to compare countries because every country is so different and that's, that's, uh, we should take that into account. But uh, usually uh, the countries that take the lead in the benchmark are the Nordics, the Baltics, Malta as well. But we also see, for instance, Austria climbing up the ranks who have a really good approach to how they uh, deliver services on mobile applications. And uh, yeah, I think you can pick the good things from every country a little bit if you want to, but there's a huge difference between let's say Malta and Germany in terms of size and how it's organized so uh, I would, I always find it a bit unfair to say multi is better than Germany because you, you can't really say that it, it's just that you look at certain indicators where they are better off because yeah it's more centralized uh, country without any real municipalities it's just one platform whereas uh, of course Germany has uh, and other larger countries have different challenges
2: yeah I would agree entirely and actually I uh, was uh, thinking while Neil was speaking I recently got an invite from colleagues at IDC in the Czech Republic to speak at an event, and they asked me if I had suggestions for other European countries and speakers to talk about the government, and they said, not from Estonia, please, because everybody loves Estonia because they've done so amazingly well, but if you take that in a different context, it's difficult to replicate. So the point that Neil was making about, yes, there are leaders and everybody as different areas where they have excelled, it's super important to put those best practices in context and understand how you can apply them. I I think that's a very important point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We have uh, made an attempt to do that in, in a different way, just not just by looking at, let's say the performance indicators in the benchmark, but also taking into account all kinds of contextual factors. So you can maybe cluster countries that are similar to each other, but, but that needs much more research, I believe to really make it work because the devil's in the details, usually you cannot just say, oh, we put in, I don't know, generic indicators on skills and GDP and what have you, and then you have clusters of likewise countries, but I I think this is the the thinking that is required to make this happen uh, and make this work.
0: Let's think about um, the digital divide and how government can bring everyone with them in the move to delivering services increasingly through e-government and online. How do they make sure that no one's left behind and how do they support people with lower levels of digital literacy in in developing these services?
2: Yeah, Maybe I'll start with a story. I was speaking with someone in in Ireland, actually a high-level executive in government, and he was telling me the story of his 80-plus-year-old mother that got a letter from a local a bank branch, and the letter said something like, we're closing the branch, but don't worry because we're scaling our digital services. And that didn't mean anything to this 85-year-old lady because she had no smartphone, no PC at home, and so forth and so on. So I think the digital divide is super important, not just from the government perspective, but in general for digital across any industry. And it's about accessibility, age, visual impairment, disabilities, and and, and so forth and so on. But it's also about awareness and Niels mentioned it earlier, the more governments collaborate across silos and the more they share data, digital literacy is about being aware of how those mechanisms play out in the back office, right? How the data is shared with accessing in a transparent manner. And it's even more complicated than explaining to someone how to turn on a PC and log into a website.
1: Yeah, actually, your, your example triggers me because I think one of the, the things that governments might sometimes forget uh, in, in triggering people also to use the online channel is to really making clear what actually the benefits are. I think every grandmother sees the benefit of FaceTime because they can see their grandchildren more often at any time when they want to. And these kinds of examples, I think you also need to bring to you. what can public services mean for you? Why is it easier? Why, why will it save you time, increase your flexibility, and so on? So I think governments also need to think about it to make it, yeah, to increase, let's say, digital inclusion. Apart from, I would say, the obvious things like investing in trainings and easily accessible places where you can be helped to use online services, like libraries, and and the design of the services, as Max mentioned, uh, of course, that the, these are key. But I think so. Yeah, yeah. there is also part in the evangelism of e-government. That's almost. You talked earlier about trust in government. Obviously, the public
0: sector handles extremely sensitive information about all of us in areas like tax or health or justice and so on. It's carefully regulated. What data privacy and cybersecurity considerations do public sector organisations need to take into account when they're developing digital services?
1: Yeah, at least what I would like to bring in first is that as part of the benchmark, we've done a pilot study on cybersecurity of public websites. So basically this is an assessment using automated tools that are developed by, by open standards and one tool actually by the Dutch government, which means to, to let's say assess whether the, the basic hygiene of cybersecurity is in place that the protocols to, to take care of that. And and that assessment was quite worrying because we saw that many of the 3,000 plus URLs that we have in the sample or so do not pass most of those uh, elements of the assessment. Definitely, let's say in terms of Birdie platform, I think there's a job to do. And we see all the messages in the news every day. Yeah, there's a frequent media attention for that too. And so I think it is really important. And yeah, how to actually do it? I'm not a cybersecurity specialist, so I can't say with expertise. I know what I like from, from, for instance, the Dutch government at least, is that they provide tools. Uh, and assessments to make at least their public administrations aware of the situation and and provide guidance and advice on how to follow up. So I think that's an interesting approach to to make it uh, better across the board.
2: And I think the other element, Neil earlier mentioned training in the context of organizational change for government and training applies here as well and awareness because a lot of the incidents in terms of data losses that we've heard about, luckily not many, but they happen have to do with the fact that some civil servant was not aware that they were breaking a rule or using some tools in a manner that was not cautious enough. So raising the awareness internally in the civil service about what are the implications, what needs to be done beyond the regulatory requirements of GDPR, for instance, particularly in the context of using data as a valued asset and sharing that data, there's a lot of work and it's a big focus for the European Commission as well, data sharing and data governance, and there's not enough awareness at various levels of government.
0: So we talked about citizen services, but how does e-government benefit business? And what, what opportunities does it create for them?
1: Well, yeah, I think we, we can be, uh, we can refer also to the part that we talked about in the beginning and the benefits of what's in it for businesses. I think mostly uh, flexibility, cost savings, time savings. And especially for an entrepreneur, I think that is essential <laughs> because they're working to achieve their goals, their, their dreams in, in, in creating and building their business. One thing that might be sometimes overlooked is how to best support the entrepreneurs on that digital journey. Because even if everything is online and user-friendly and you can use it whenever or whatever you want, it's not your core business, <laughs> government services. So you would need sometimes help if it becomes more complex, I don't know, in tax administration or so, what have you, and, and there, I think it's important to also make sure that uh, people can ask their questions.
2: Yeah. I think that last element is super interesting. And we were doing some research outside of the government benchmark. We were doing some research around tax and customs, and it's amazing how many intermediaries have specialized in helping businesses. So businesses have been created and grown to help other businesses deal with customs declarations, import and export declarations, with VAT declarations and so forth and so on. So there is that layer that has become very important and technology plays a role in automating the work that layer does. And a lot of these government agencies actually have created committees and working groups to bring along the digital transformation journey, this entire ecosystem of intermediaries. It's its a whole industry, if you will.
0: Let's move on to the European question then. Across the European Union, is there an ambition to have e-government services that enable people to access the government support they need wherever they are within the member states? and it Will there be one day a frictionless experience for government users across
1: the whole of the EU? Let's hope eventually at least that goal. I think it's one of the let's say, the premises of the European idea eh? to be able to work, travel, uh, reside, so and so on in whatever country in the union, but it, it will take time. and we've talked about barriers for national local governments. I would say if you, Project that on a European scale, the the challenges are even bigger because you have to make all these different systems that are developed in different countries interoperable in a way. But in a sense, I think that is, let's say, moving forward, and especially the European Commission plays an important role in my view, in the sense that they are in a position to set up certain regulation. For instance, everyone needs to use a electronic identification that needs to be recognized in other countries. They can set standards around web accessibility, for instance. Every public website needs to comply with the uh, WCAG uh, standard, uh, and these things really help to drive also cross-border services in Europe. and And we see that already a little bit in the benchmark that the gaps between, let's say, the front runners and the laggards are is narrowing a bit. So that means also that the countries that work behind there are moving up the the chain, so to say, to to be yeah to, to deliver more uh, services. It's amazing. Eh? Some some things can already happen. So for instance, Finns can retrieve e-prescriptions in Croatian pharmacies. I, I I still think that is an amazing example of what it could be in the end. And you can talk about students, of course, uh, submitting applications in other countries or entrepreneurs starting up businesses elsewhere. There's great examples. We just need to make sure that the examples become the norm <laughs> instead of the exceptions.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with Niels. Not much to add there. It's, it's a super interesting area, particularly if you think of it from a business perspective, right? We're so integrated from a uh trading point of view, but trading doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that you can set up a business, work somewhere else, and making that possible is a huge potential benefit that cross-border government can enable.
0: Let's think about sustainability. Is e government inherently more sustainable or less? How does it impact the environment and climate objectives?
2: Maybe I'll start on this one, Niels. It's, of course, a topic that gets a lot of buzz, as you said earlier. Sustainability gets a lot of attention, particularly in Europe with the Green Deal and with the recovery plans that have put the accent on sustainability as an engine for... European innovation and, and digital definitely plays a role. Your government plays a role. On the one end, you have the ability to carry out a lot of transactions online. So there's fewer people that have to go to offices, drive a car. So there's definitely a, a benefit there in terms of reduced CO2 emission because of e government, I'm not sure. Every, anybody has fully counted that, but there is a benefit. The other side of the coin is that by scaling all of these e government services, you consume a lot more energy. You need more computing power. And probably that offsets a little bit the advantage in terms of more transactions that are carried out online. And then the third element that we were thinking of, but probably Neil can comment on this a little bit more than I can. There's a set of E-government services that are related to sustainability, like tax credits for putting off a solar panel on my roof. I can think of one and that's not easy to do what I've, I've done it recently.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, indeed. In, in that category, there's quite some services also for businesses, uh, entrepreneurs to, to make it easier to, uh, to become more sustainable themselves. And you can, and government can facilitate that, uh, whether they are charging poles or solar or, or what have you. But I agree, and I think what is important in this sense is also that, that Max, you already said it, I'm not sure if, if someone has actually measured it. I think that is the key here. So how do we not only have a strategy to make e-government also, let's say, sustainable, but also how, how do we actually measure that and understand the whole value chain of how these services are delivered the footprint it, that that comes with it the benefit opposed to the let's say physical or, or or other channels we need to monitor it and see what the effects are of any improvements that we make in that process i think that is uh, that is key uh, in moving forward and at least uh, and that's one of the positive signs in the post-recovery plans i would say the, the the post-covid recovery plans they are moving us in the right direction in the sense that there is lots of attention for this and also there needs to be a rationale behind the investments that are being made. So I think that's, that's a good good development, but we need to we need to measure. Yeah, I'm a benchmark guy, so I need to <laughs> we need to have data, right? To have the insights. So I guess that's key here.
0: What factors should governments be considering then as they move forward with e-government services from today? What what's, what should they be looking at when they're developing their digital strategies?
2: Yeah, maybe I'll start and and Niels can bring us to a close. The way we think of it at, at IDC at the moment really goes back to the initial definition that Niels gave when he said that the government is about efficiency and effectiveness and responsiveness. It's about the outcomes, right And to achieve those outcomes, there's five elements that we think governments should look at that have to do with technology, but they're not only about technology. technology is an enabling factor. So the first one is is purpose, right what is the purpose, the outcome, the impact that we're trying to make with the government and measure that impact and deliver on the promise where it matters for the group of citizens or businesses that are the target for that service. The second one is resilience, right? And it has to do with being agile, and speeding up the deployment of new services, being able to reuse services that already exist instead of reinventing the wheel uh, because that increases the agility, but putting those best practices into context, as we said earlier. So purpose, resilience, imagination, rethinking how services are being delivered. As we discussed briefly earlier, it's about thinking of the paradigm and sometimes reversing the part instead of, the government asking for information from citizens to validate their eligibility for the service. There's enough data in government of which probably only 5-10% is being used to let the government identify citizens that are entitled, businesses that are entitled for some kind of service and proactively deliver. So reimagining that approach to delivering services is, is really important. Then, of course, mastering The technology, the business workflows, the automation, user-centric design, and and so forth and so on. So mastery is the other element. And then ecosystem, about working across silos. There's not one entity in government that can solve all the problems. We are facing big societal challenges. It's It's only through collaboration that can happen. And data sharing, for instance, is at the core of this ecosystem approach. So purpose, resilience, imagination, mastery, and ecosystem is how we think about the next stage in the journey to e-government or digital government, whatever you want to
1: Yeah, I cannot, I can only agree with that. And of course, I won't debate the analyst here. So with the risk of, of, let's say, uh, I don't want to repeat anything, but the previous question on sustainability triggered me a bit. We're also after a a sustainable digital government, and we need to think about how we can make that happen in the future. And there was, uh, there used to be this old motto, right, around uh, what was called reduce, reuse, recycle, which is one of those mottos. And I think that is the same we need for e-government in a sense. So reduce in the sense that we need to take out any burden for people using and taking advantage of online services, including a skilling of people. Reuse, um, for me, relates to the technology part. The solutions are, most of them are there. So just use them, broader implementation across the board. And then recycle, Uh, that was a bit more tricky, but usually recycling is uh, like with bottles, you, you don't throw anything away. You actually keep, and we also, for public sector, we need to keep the knowledge that exists in public sector. We just need to recycle the model of how it's organized. So that was my thinking around this. A reduce, reuse, recycle might even be a good one also for e-government. Maybe to add the, the, the R on, on responsiveness, because I, I think that's also what the pandemic told us, that we need to be uh, able to even quicker adapt and re- respond to, to needs in society. That, that will be definitely... Uh, key to move forward. Yeah. So a different flavor to, to, to the same model, I would say, but we need to, as we said earlier, we need to bring also to convey the message of why it's important and what are the benefits that we bring. So we need strong messaging. Uh, and one of the other things that I used before, uh, and this, I would say in line with the thinking of, let's say the bigger well-known authors in this domain as well is that we talk about e-government but what we definitely need is also an let's say an entrepreneurial government so a government that is willing to take the risks as they've done in the past investing in in many of the innovations and technologies that came about and we also need that here in in e-government services because it it also requires some entrepreneurial spirit and guts or boldness how we want to call it to uh, to do it in a different way than we used to do it if you had to hazard a guess about
0: the types of and breakthroughs or firsts that we might see in e government in the years to come? What would they be? Talked earlier on, Max, about the frontier being expanded into new areas. What's next on the list?
2: I guess one, one of the things that I've been thinking in the past couple of years and one of the predictions that, that we put forward, and I don't remember the exact percent, as I think it was 25% or something along those lines, is that a number of governments will try to make the bureaucracy invisible. And it's back to one of the points that we discussed earlier, right? It's eliminating the need for the citizens to understand if they have to go to that welfare agency or if that welfare service is done, delivered by the national agency, but the front end office is with the municipality and, and so forth and so on. That will really redesign the entire way of government's operations from the perspective of citizens and technology is a big part of that and it's going to take quite some time but over the next three or four years particularly the large very thought-leading frontier type of government yeah pension and unemployment and tax programs are really investing in that direction, I think, of making the bureaucracy.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, some call it society 5.0, but you see an increasing uh, blurring of physical and virtual space, I would say, and that requires different capacities from government on innovation to make it, uh, to make it happen. Yeah. And apart from that, the E, not only for electric, but also for entrepreneurial, I think that's key here too.
0: It's clear from today's discussion that E government has come a long way, but can still go much further the next generation of e-government services, the ones that create the new proactive paradigm Max described, could change what it means to interact with the public sector for future generations. Thanks to both today's guests, Niels and Max, you can find links to the e-government benchmark report and to other publications by Niels and Max in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Future Sight,
1: a show from Captain and I Invent. We'll see you soon.